I feel like I wake up a lot and I don't recognize the world that I'm in. And then at the same time, like everything feels the same. I feel like I have made some dent in food media on, for example, like one of my main goals to honestly represent Hawaii's food. Our voices are not loud enough. Like I'm happy to be like part of this movement. I, I feel like we go a few steps forward and then the world is burning again in like a different way that I never would have expected. But I'm still very caught up in it feels like the world is burning. Yeah. How do you have a legacy when like when it's just going to be set fire to? This is Uncommon Good, the podcast where we chat to ordinary people doing uncommon good in service of our common humanity. My name is Polly Reese. Fam, I am delighted to bring to you today James Beard Award nominated chef Kiki Aranita, whose Hawaiian sauce company, Poi Dog, has been seen on Good Morning America, NBC News, and more. Prior to the COVID 19 pandemic, she owned a catering business and restaurant in Philly also called Poi Dog. A content warning off the top, we talk about war and historical violence, trauma, anti-Asian racism, and there is some explicit language in this episode. So as always, if these things are not right for you to listen to, feel free to switch this one off and we'll catch you in the next one. We talk about why Asian cultures love spam and how we cook it deliciously. The challenges of closing a restaurant and transitioning to a sauce making company, how Kiki stays grounded as her star continues its meteoric rise, her love of fiber arts, equity and justice in the food entrepreneurship industry, and so much more. This was an incredible delight and a privilege to chat to Kiki. Please enjoy our conversation. So first and foremost, I don't normally drink on the show. But in honor of the continued launching of your line, I have a beer cocktail that has the chili pepper water and it has the lavender ponzu in it. And it's awesome. What kind of beer are you drinking? So it's also local to Philly. Um, We're sitting in Philly today. My favorite spot is Wissahickon Brewing Company up in East Falls. And it is their version of a Mexican lager. Like it's that sort of light very low ABV. It's called their sunny side lager, but mwah, chef's kiss. The sauces, a little bit of Worcestershire, a little bit of like soy, the the tomato juice, uh, the the lime zest, the the tahini, the seasoning. Yeah, that sounds really refreshing. Given that you are now in the the CPG market, the consumer packaged goods market, I'll send you the recipe because it's like virtually formulaic. So what, what is your dog's name? Her name is Coconut, and she has a cousin, my sister's dog, who I believe you've also met, and his name is Macadamia Nut. So their nickname, they both go by Nut Aranita. So talking about Huli Huli, yeah, I'm going to get into branding real, real early, like right off the top, but I don't care because the lines are, are awesome. So I had the privilege of sampling the sauces at a craft fair locally here in Philly, and what 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 an absolute delight! Like a, a, a delicious marinade, a wonderful flavoring agent for some sort of like aioli based sauce. At least for, I would love to have that. I'm I'm a I'm 
Uh, I'm an aioli on fr- on French fries person, so I would love to have that like equal parts like huli huli and mayo, and have that be my French fry dipping sauce. Oh, I haven't tried that. You know, I've done that with the other sauces. Chili pepper water mayo was recently on one of the menus that I've done recently. And the lavender ponzu works really, really well with mayo. But we are retiring it because many of the ingredients come from Japan and it's just, it it costs way too much money to produce. So that said, not everything um, about that is sad because I've launched the huli huli sauce and that really, really does speak to my childhood. And it's super savory. And although it's designed to make huli huli chicken, which has this, a beautiful char to it. Yes. It works really well on other proteins as well. When I first launched it at the Cherry Bomb Jubilee, we used oyster mushrooms to, like we basically roasted the oyster mushrooms in huli huli sauce, served it over hummus that my husband Ari made, and it was so delicious. Yeah, I like still get messages from people who are at the Jubilee asking me for that recipe, and I'm like, it's literally just the sauce. Just buy the sauce and put it on the mushrooms uh, and then put it in the oven. And that's all you have to do. Exactly. You don't even have to make it at home yourself. You have spent countless hours in the food labs figuring out like what the finished version of it is. It's there to enjoy. It's there for people to just pick up, have it in its finished form as you have intended it to be like it's it, it, it's there it's thank very you versatile too yeah the, oh you're welcome i mean i used to make like a version of the sauce whenever we did huli huli chicken um on the barbecue uh, on the grill at home and yeah like you know you're like obviously making a sauce from scratch so you're getting the pineapples mixing them up with soy sauce and everything else and mirin so this was also like a selfish sh- shortcut for me to have huli huli more often uh, yeah. But it was with the ketchup too. Like I, so I, I hate ketchup. I, I hate. I think it's so disgusting. Like ketchup to me just tastes like high fructose corn syrup. Yes. And it's just and like food dye. I think it's disgusting. And I think I really recently read an article where somebody was saying like the artisanal ketchup th- scene is dead. Um, it just never took off because everybody yeah. loves industrial ketchup. Everybody's wrong. So I think <laughs> it's gross. Yes. Yeah, and so like, there's just there. You have better options. You can have guavacatsu. You can have huli huli sauce, and they both like work really beautifully as ketchups that don't taste like high fructose corn syrup. A couple of things. I grew up with parents. Uh, I, I grew up with Depression era grandparents, and one of them made their own like homemade tomato ketchup and exactly the same thing is true like nobody wants to have a tomato ketchup that actually tastes like tomato they, they want to have or or has the color of tomatoes they want to have that i'm sorry mom my so my, my mother is a native pittsburghian they want to have that perfect sort of what is that xanthan gum consistency heinz red sauce please please don't sue us heinz food corp but 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 it's absolutely that I, I I worry sometimes that things that started out as more reasonably flavorful and less exotic things like sriracha are going to become the same way. But thank you again for huli huli and and guavacatsu. Then thank you for for making a space for that for for people to have things like that 
accessibly. I mean, I hope it becomes more accessible in a multitude of ways. So, okay. Are you on TikTok? Yes. Okay. So I don't really post on TikTok, but I'm I'm like a really avid scroller. And there's an account that I'm definitely going to misquote because I don't pay close enough attention to TikTok. Yeah. It, so it's like cancel like the clothesline or cancel something. Um, but basically it's somebody who's like going through all the shelves at the grocery store and and like saying like, all right, even though there are all these different brands, like all this different variety, like these all belong to the same few corporations, the same investment funds, like everything like belongs to like Vanguard and like BlackRock own everything. Yeah, so it yes. doesn't matter whether you're buying Hidden Valley or whatever, like, and the, and like, so the aisles are like covered, like colored in on the TikToks. And if it's like orange or red, then it belongs to a, like a fund. Yeah. And I, I wish, like, I want to get my sauces to the point where they aren't as expensive, but so I want them to be more accessible that way. I don't know when that's going to happen because I am literally the only person running this company. Yes. I'm the opposite of every other product that you'll see at the Acme, for example. Yes. So in that sense, but like I'm working on distribution, I'm working on greater distribution as well, but I'm still at the very beginning stages of things. So I don't know, maybe we'll revisit this interview years on and more people will actually realistically have access to these flavors and sauces. So yeah, I'm working on it. Give me some time. Absolutely. But yeah, it's like, it's really, really disappointing. Um, but also elucidating to like watch these videos and be like, wow, like we really don't have all the choices that we that we think we do. It's true. And it's not like you're choosing between on that aisle. It's not like you're choosing between a hundred delicious things that all are in the supply chain reasonably sourced. You've spoken about this at length before. You're choosing between lots of different options, all of which have an incredible level of human cost that even though it's not passed on to us as the consumer, are questioning, are, are, are not just somewhere in the, somewhere in the supply chain, whether it's the producer, whether it's the factory workers who are producing it, there is a human cost that that we don't see. And an environmental cost. Yes. And like, I don't know how to fix this problem. Like, I know in some ways, in, well, if you're a CPG co company, no matter like what your packaging is, you're going to add to our landfills. You're right. going to add to the problem. But I think the idea of starting a small business and continuing to so support other small businesses is that if you can shift the money away from these large corporations and shift funds away from the people who are greenwashing things, then yes. at the end of the day, we're going to be better. But like, we're not, per nobody's perfect. If you open a CP, if you have a CPG company, you're packaging things, you're shipping things. Like all of this comes as, as at an environmental cost and these things weigh on me constantly. That's not, yes. there was recently a New York Times article about the author tried to go through a day without touching plastic and i thought it was the most fascinating thing because like in food service like even if you're doing the, the best job possible you're going to be touching with single-use plastics yes. you're going to be filling up a dumpster like my husband ari is pretty is like up for many years was like on the forefront of operating outside of the industrial food chain and he's extreme not just like in thinking in terms of food sourcing like working with very specific farmers and working with like very specific 
vinegar producers. Like all of his linens were sewed by one person. His aprons were sewed from like used like burlap sacks. And I tried to like help with the sourcing of these materials as well. And you should really look into Heidi Barr. She is as she sews aprons and these amazing linen coffee filters and um, purchases like linen from either Pennsylvania mills or from Lithuanian mills for like very specific purposes. And I, I tapped my cousin who's um, the master roaster at a Pete's Coffee in California. And I was like nice. physically flying back on these uh, coffee sacks that were otherwise going to be just like shredded and like, yes. into the landfill. And they were gorgeous. Like these sacks were like, they coffee sacks are beautiful, especially if they're being sourced from like places like Yemen and like all over the Middle East. Like there's like gorgeously painted and they were just getting thrown out. So I think I flew back like maybe 200 pounds of coffee sacks for her. Like one time I was out there for a, for a family wedding, but like, you know, you go down this route and it's very hard to like get off of this route. But Ari is like, so, like he didn't want to use any product that came from a clear industrial source like yes all the sunflower oil all, all the sorry all the canola oils like even that was like local and i don't know anybody else who's like buying like that much bulk local oil it just and it just doesn't happen all his meats came from primal supply meats uh rip recently closed and like he was just s so intense about this with his restaurant lucy but he still used cling wrap like, cause yeah. there's just, there's no other option. Like there's nothing, there's like no real alternative and you still need to like follow the health code and like, there's only so much you can do. And whenever you're using like plastic wrap or cling wrap and things like that, like you're, you're, you're adding to a problem. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, I think this is like the stuff that I think about like all day long. Yes. And so one, I, I want to say thank you for, thank you for continuing to to wrestle with it. One of the things that I wish we had more space in media to talk about is that these sorts of things where there is no clean answer to them, like how do we make things better? Like we can say, how do we make things better at least for today? What is the best, most human and environmentally dignified thing decision we can make today based on whatever information we have and then when tomorrow comes we'll make another decision tomorrow and it's i mean it's such a funny thing okay so i'm half chinese i like i mentioned i grew up in hong kong and i and i oh my gosh whenever i say i'm chinese it's a whole thing because like i, I don't feel any ties to mainland china and there's a yeah. my my family was originally from nanjing and you tell anybody that you're from that your roots are in Nanjing, outside of states, and chances are they know about the rape of Nanking, and then they're like, Ooh. Yes. "So yes. yes, so I, I, my, my, my family escaped that, so I actually have quite an ugly family history. But through that ugly family history, as something that's like in common with many other Chinese families, like you are taught a certain type of frugality. Like everybody I know, no matter how wealthy at this point in their lives are, like they understand like. Like if we just talk about like how like trauma works and how healing of trauma works, not even th saying that these are necessarily like already like bad things, like universally bad things that we they're just we just judge them as bad. But these things they 
they are a part of who we are. And these are things that get passed down in our genes to us. Whether they're great things like resilience or strength or determination or whether they're less helpful things like actual like physical trauma, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, like actual like medical disease, et cetera. I, I hear you on that piece. I mean, we I'm I'm Korean, but I'm a Korean adoptee. I'm a hundred percent Korean, but I lived in Korea three months before I, I was adopted and grew up here in with white parents in the States. So there is this sense of like where where do we actually belong? What identities can we claim? Like, am I Korean enough? Am I Asian enough? And who determines what that is? And and also, does any of that matter? I mean, it matters. Yeah. And I think the conversations that we're having out of the ugly histories of our ancestors, like, we should just continue to have them. Yeah. I feel like in America, a lot of history gets unintentionally erased. Like, we have such short memories right now. I happen to be in Philly right now, and like we, I feel like we've had like three apocalyptic events in the last month. Like I remember, and I, I was like telling somebody that one of like the last times I spent a full week here was uh, for the James Beard Taste America event. It's on that, by the way. Thanks, but it meant I had to. So, and it was a blast. Like it was incredible. Like I absolutely loved this event. This event, but um, I was in the basement of the Philadelphia Museum of Art prepping, and I had to prep. 400 portions of fish, which is a massive amount of fish. Like Ari and I were elbow deep in like- That's thousands of dollars of fish. During the water crisis. So like, we're like, all right, like how do we clean things? Like, what do we drink? So for people who need a little bit of updating about the context of what we're talking about, in the recent history of Philly, we had a crisis up in northeast philly where a certain industrial plant had a spill where a bunch of chemicals were likely to have been leached into the water it would later be determined that there was no level of risk to any of the population of philadelphia in a way that was going to cause a crisis of public health but at the same time the if the PR had had been handled well, it could have been much less of a crisis than what it was. Number one, number two, we're taping in mid June, so there is an incredible sort of fallout from the Canada, the Canada. Good job, Polly. The Canada <laughs> forest fires again. Anybody who lives in a place like California where there is that level of risk can say that. Yes, it is. It's not good to be breathing it, to be breathing in that level of smoke. But also there was a level of panic that was brought on by the city that I think some would say created an unreasonable level. At least I I would say created a level of panic that was unreasonable, given that that smoke lasted for like 72 hours. Then there is the ever present sort of looming existential threat and fatigue of the unreasonable just terrifying amount of gun violence in the city because of all of the un all of the 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 guns that have been trafficked into town there there is the continuing again existential threat but very also very real threat of the the opioid abuse we're in the middle of a mayoral race where 
all of the language of the posturing has been about how do we make Philly safer and cleaner at, at the same time while dealing with all of these other unanticipated crazy environmental issues. Please continue. Including the I-95 collapse. Which yes. won't well, know the environmental yeah. impact of that yet. Like, I, and it's like I have whiplash from all of these events that are happening. And I mean, I only brought up the water crisis because I was telling somebody who is from Philadelphia and yeah. was there for the water crisis in, I guess, April. Yeah. I was just, oh my gosh, like I prepped all that fish like during the water crisis. And they're like, what water crisis? I'm like, this was literally like four weeks ago. What do you mean, what water crisis? I'm like, remember, like, you know, the water crisis and do yeah. it, like took some water memory jogging. But like, yeah, so like collective memory can be very long, but it can also be short term. And sometimes short term collective memory is legitimately terrible. That said, like, it's not, that's not like intentional. That's not like malicious. Uh, that's not like a malicious forgetting or an erasure of, of the past. It's something that unfortunately happens when there is a large, great succession of terrible things that happen. But I'm also from a place where my, the, me like, the media that I consumed was extremely censored. Yes. Our textbooks were censored. So like, this is like Hong Kong was like the last remaining place is the last remaining place where the Tiananmen massacre is commemorated. Yeah. You don't even see that in Chinese textbooks, I believe anymore. And Japanese textbooks have, to my knowledge, pretty much erased much of the Japanese Imperial Army's atrocities um, throughout southeastern China. Like nobody... Nobody teaches like the rape of Nanking anymore. And you talk to younger students nowadays and they're being taught a very different history than yeah. the one that you're learning at home. And so going back to the thought that does this even matter? Yes, it matters. Otherwise, we erase the past. Yes. Whether unintentionally or intentionally. Yeah. For, for listeners who are a little less aware of their Southeast Southeast Asian history. Can you tell us the Cliff Notes version of what happened at Nanking? So rather than walk you through the entire thing, I will maybe try to focus you on two things so that listeners can go and maybe read up on this because I'm definitely not an expert in Chinese history. Yeah. And I know this through a very, very a personal perspective of my own family having fled so December 7th, 1941, we all know that that is a day that will live in infamy because of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Now, within the same day, but technically the following day, because Hong Kong, the time zone is ahead of Hawaii, the Japanese also attacked uh, the harbor of Hong Kong. So both of my home islands were attacked within the same like 12 hours. And this is something that like, please meditate on this. This is ridiculous. Like, this is... Can you imagine, like, we think of Japan as a very different entity nowadays. And I knew it was painful for my grandmother, my Chinese grandmother, to see me and my cousins, like, absolutely nuts about Sanrio and Hello Kitty and yeah. all the very successful, soft power that Japan brought to the rest of the world during my generation. Like us eating sushi. And I remember my mother telling me, so my mother learned Japanese and could speak it pretty well. And Tokyo was always a stop 
for us um, to fly between Hawaii and Hong Kong. Yeah. Flying United back in the '90s, you couldn't fly that whole that entire route. Um, you had you always stopped at Narita Airport. And my mom took an interest to learning Japanese and uh, loved Japanese handicrafts. Um, she was trained in fine art. She had an MFA, and she would always have to remind me. She's like the Japanese killed her entire family. We have no re- relations because we only have the my Chinese side. I only know my mother's brother and sister brothers and sisters. They ne- grew up with no cousins, no aunts, no uncles because everybody was killed by the Japanese um, during the massacre of Nanking. So it was a very, very ugly time in history. Uh, yeah. I hope that you all get to maybe, I don't know, just look it up on Wikipedia. There are many stories that are pretty awful that came out of this time. There is not a very clear tallying of casualties. The numbers that you'll find very, very widely, but there was a mass exodus from Nanjing, especially if you were wealthy, then you could leave. Yeah, and many people returned after after the war, but uh, then you had communism take hold, uh, which was yes. also not a very calm time in Chinese history. So my grandparents fled from Nanjing to Taipei, and then um, they settle uh, with their first born sons in Taipei. And at this point, um, my uncle, my elder uncles are quite, are older. So they stay in Taipei and then they flee with um, the rest of the family to Hong Kong. And then my mother and her twin are born in Hong Kong in 1951. So within the space of like 1940 and 1951, they're basically on the move, like going throughout uh, southeastern China, leaving everything behind. My grandfather never returned to uh, mainland China ever. He vowed never to return. He left his family behind, never saw them again. It was only after he passed away um, that my grandmother felt like she could see her homeland one more time before she passed away. So she was accompanied by a few of her daughters there. And I remember them coming back and my grandmother's telling us that our that the house that she grew up in was still standing, but it had been converted into a museum. And the mirror that was like on the wall was still exactly there. It just like wasn't their house anymore. And like this wasn't that long ago. Like this was like this was you know? not a hundred years ago, which is not, not a lot of ago. time in the history of China. No, and like I sometimes I tell people to shock. Them. So I'll, I'll leave you with two other like Nanjing-related stories. One that's personal and one that's not. Um, my mo- my grandmother had bound feet. So okay. she had 11 children. My mother wow. was 11. And can you imagine this woman fleeing her home multiple times, traveling and like running away with like basically gold bars like stuffed in her jacket on bound feet that were released later on in life. But I remember on seeing her toes and when you have bound feet, they, it's, it's like nowadays people think of it as like, oh, this is like what ancient Chinese people did. Like, I mean, I saw her feet in like the 1990s. They were lotus shaped. I remember her yes. toes were stretched all the way across the, like the rest, the flat of her, her feet, like her podcast, go for yeah. it. So her pinky toe was like 
stretched all the way across um, her foot. So it still created that lotus shape. And the idea was both to have like a tiny lotus shaped foot, but also to impair the walking, like the gait of a woman so that her hips swayed in like a seductive fashion. And this is something that like rich Chinese families would inflict upon their daughters. So my grandmother, and I'm not old, like my grandmother had bound feet. Like this is kind of ridiculous. Another very famous news story from the time that the Japanese occupied Nanjing was there was this highly publicized duel between two Japanese soldiers about how many people they could murder with their swords in one go. So I can't recall the number, and I realize that this is partially apocryphal. But yeah, there was, it was this highly publicized duel between yep. two soldiers hacking Chinese people with their swords to see how many they could kill in one day. So that's the kind of thing that um, my family fled. And there's I know that there's a lot that they haven't told me, and it's really hard to try to bring that up. Yeah. Then now, like my parents yes. are there in their 80s and like they're still like, oh, one day we'll tell you about these things. So I'm like, what do you mean one day? But, you know. It's a couple things. First, thank you for the vulnerability of sharing that. These things, at least in my experience, there's a cost to even like doing the work of telling the story. There's an emotional cost to it. So thank you. Two, you you raise more good points that, one, this is not history that anyone would very routinely talk about on a podcast. Two, I will acknowledge for myself, this is not history that that I knew and I knew the actual cost of. I, I was aware of, emphasize the element of the mutilation of bodies of women. That it was this this thing of art and beauty. Well, that might be true, but art and beauty also has a cost. And how do do we at one point at what point the, the, this this is the question that's that's in my mind that that I think about a lot with art is like at what point have do we reach the the thing to say enough is enough? Do we stop justifying the the human cost the 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 amount of suffering that goes into producing the art that. Our, our cultures have decided are are to be crystallized or enshrined. I, I I don't have an answer. I just it's it's one that I wrestle with. Yeah, I yeah I don't have an answer to either. But let's try to avoid mutilation. Yes, most cultural yes. mutilation. Yes, please, internet. Let's 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 avoid things that have a level of cost of human body and a, a level of pain and mobility. That yeah. Yes. Life is painful enough. Yes. And and, and and you don't have to be a Buddhist to know that. You don't um, like yes. Right, it's really sad, right? I know that like my grandmother's parents must have like done this out of love and culture being like, well, you know, this is gonna give her more opportunities opportunities in life with bound feet. That's just like what's done, but like they, they made her a cripple for the rest of her life. She walked with her with a cane for the rest of her life. Yes, there was. I have a memory of reading um, Pearl S. Buck, of reading The Good Earth in in primary school, and of pain, of of ongoing pain. That is the cost of bringing honor to the family, and I, I just 
I'm tip I'm I'm tipping my hand a bit. That's that's the cost of and in Korean cultures. This for for us the cost of bringing honor and and of of being American for Korean adoptees is whitewashing. Like being successful as the like the model minority, the whole like trying to be as American as as possible. I've I've talked about this with other guests, but there is. I wish that for every even just for every 10 voices that tell us that we have to grossly mutilate our bodies or our histories or our beliefs or our mental or emotional space, that there was even just one for every 10 that said who are not like Asian men would be, would have such a stronger chance of being well in every possible definition of the term. If we had even like that one month out of 12 where our parents were like, oh, like you're actually just fine how you are. If you're like me, you love it when it's easy and uncomplicated to put good out into the world. And nothing helps you do those things more than a strong cup of coffee. Enter today's sponsor, BVP Coffee. BVP Coffee Company provides single origin coffee and unique blends from all around the world, all produced right here in Philadelphia. Their latest coffee, 1867, is an ode to the rich and illustrious legacies of Howard University and Morehouse College. BVP Coffee donates a dollar from each bag sold to support business students attending historically black colleges and universities. I tried it and loved it, and makes a great iced coffee. BVP Coffee has a special offer for Uncommon Good listeners. Right now, you can go to their website, bvp.coffee, and save 10% on your order by using the code UNCOMMONGOODPOD at checkout. You can even use this code for recurring coffee subscriptions, so you're always saving 10% and never missing a day of delicious coffee. When you use our code, you're supporting coffee farmers, HBCU students, BVP Coffee, and the podcast. That's code UNCOMMONGOODPOD at checkout at bvp.coffee. Now back to the program. Yeah, I, I, that, I'm, I am sorry. Right? I'm, right? I'm just sorry. Yeah, that, um, it's, it's, so, it, it's, it's one of those things, like, I hope we... Yeah, I mean, I hope we have more, like, kind conversations. And, I, okay, so I tend to see things through, like, a food lens, and I yes. try not to, because, like, I've only really been in the food world for the last 10 years, and I think about other things, not just restaurants and chefs and CPG products and the little bit of food media that is still along and going along and trucking. Yeah. Congrats on that, too, by the way. Thank you. Oh, no, I forgot what I was going to say. It was good, though. Oh, man. Oh, Kyle, is it your fault? Are you too cute? Well, all right. But it was, we were, we were talking about, like, bringing the, like keeping all the things that making our culture, make our culture beautiful without bringing along all the stuff that hurts us, that yes. has the baggage. Yeah. And okay. So I like wrestling with this thing that, cause it just happened. I have a friend who has a very like significant Substack following. Nice. She also works in the food world and has like a, anyway, she, she cooks and writes and 
does cool things. Um, so she just featured me in a newsletter. And I, so she um, started off the newsletter being like, hey, if you don't know Kiki Araneda, and she's just like, say that out loud. Like, it's a sing-songy name. And I love that. I'm like, oh my gosh, like, I, I love the idea of like my name being lyrical. And I remember like seeing that line and being like, oh, thanks. That's sweet of you. But one of her newsletter readers emailed her and said that in calling my name sing-songy, she was actually being racist. And I was like, no, she's not. So like my friend was like, she was like really hurt. And so she like apologizes to me. She's like, I didn't mean to like do that to you. I'm like, first of all, no apology necessary. Second of all, like my last name is Basque because my great grandfather was Basque. And pretty sure like all the Spaniards did was like colonize people, spread Catholicism and syphilis, smallpox. (laughs) I'm like, thank goodness after centuries of carnage, um, I have like a lyrical sing-song name to show for it. But like, I don't think you can be racist against like the conquerors in my family (laughs) line. So I'm like, you go ahead, like sing-songy. Like, I feel like you could go a little bit worse than that. But let's like, that was like such a like strange moment for me because on the one hand, I'm like, oh, I I thought that was kind of nice. Like, and like, all right, you don't need to know that like I have like, you know, in my lineage, probably like I don't know a whole lot about that side of the family, but let's just assume because like otherwise, like why else would there be Spanish Catholics in Hawaii? They don't belong there. That's right. Uh, And on the other hand, I'm like, I don't know who this person is. And she is trying to speak for me in a way that I'm not, that doesn't that I'm uncomfortable uncomfortable with like yeah. I was like I don't think I like this I don't like I don't think I like this part of modernity yeah fuck this fuck the saviors like all of the people who who want to have that sort of that that justified outrage that don't know us like one of the things this is this is a bit of a hot take but we're about sort of like finding the middle ground here everyone has to be outraged like it's a it's a part it's a part of like of modernity like with with social media that we're expected to have a hot take we're expected to be outraged about everything and perhaps rightly so of being aware of more of things that are not right not just and maybe that's true but also at the same time being outraged is exasperating it's exhausting yeah and it's so hurtful like you become like a outrage like it's like a black hole you know like and it just like sucks people in and i know like my friend had like no bad intentions and she wasn't speaking out of turn like and even if she was she had like no bad intentions and just like wanted to like celebrate like i mean the newsletter was like about like like uh the way that i like to have eggs for breakfast it was it was it was really cute like awesome question and answer of like all right who would you serve eggs to dead or alive like you know if you had (laughs) the choice of like anybody in the world and like, how do you like your eggs in the morning? Like, what do you put on your eggs? And and then like, also like, you know, it was like, there was a little bit on, on the fiber art. So I'm like, oh my gosh, like, thank you so much for taking the time to like, show this with, like, spread this with your followers. Like, I really yeah. appreciate Like, Like, I just thought it was like the sweetest thing. Like, it was honestly like scrolling through this news- newsletter. I was just, this is adorable. And like, one of the, it was great. Um, but for yeah. somebody to come at her and criticize her in a way that was not valid. Like, I'm just, I just feel so bad. Like, she put work into like creating this wonderful, sweet newsletter. And, you know, you, you hear all the bits of feedback and it's, I know that she was uh, quite um, hurt by uh, this exchange and yeah. I wish she did not have the experience. I, I'm sorry to your friend. I, if, if your friend ever listens, he and I validate you and, and the fun that you were having. And I think it's fair to say that we, 
we want you to keep having fun. Yeah, I hope yeah. this doesn't discourage her from her delightful newsletters in future. But I feel like like I expressed enough rage on my part. Yeah. <laughs> this ridiculous comment that I, I think she's okay now. But yeah, it's fine. Like, don't be outraged. It's really okay. Especially don't be outraged if you know nothing about what you're being out- outraged about. Yeah. Be informed. But also, I think one of the best ways to have eggs in the morning is a spam and avocado benedict for me. A little bit of little, little, little bit of cilantro, a little bit of garlic. Then a, a, disco- a, a preparation of spam that I discovered that I loved, a searing with uh, gochujang paste. Like in, instead of like your, your soy and, and like your sugar, for me, it's like that sort of spicy, like still very sugary, very sort of fatty, oily paste, like mwah, 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 mwah. How do you slice your spam? So it depends on how I'm preparing. If I'm having like a Korean stew, like if I'm having like tteokbokki or, or a stew, I'll, I'll slice it in nine and then I'll slice the nine slices in thirds. So I'll have 20, 27 little sticks of delicious goodness. If it's if it's on a Benedict, it's, it's in nine. Yeah. Nine is the right answer. Oh, 100%. You have, a, you have the spam slicer? I do not. I have one of those old slicers for hard-cooked eggs, but I refuse to use it because it's too narrow. So I slice it by hand. Oh, wow. And are you able to get like nine even slices? Oh, no, of course not. Like I took one culinary class at like a a community center and my knife skills are shit. Like I'm not very good. I, so I started watching like YouTube videos to learn just enough so that I, I know enough to significantly decrease my chances of cutting myself. Okay. I highly recommend a spam slicer. I'm going to do it. I'm going to actually do it like right now while we're like while we're on tape like and yes fuck you Amazon but also like please buy all of our affiliate links again the whole thing of like hating something but also appreciating its value at the same time yeah yeah no I I need one and but we've talked we've talked about that component of it I I would be remiss if if we didn't talk Asian to Asian about spam if we didn't talk about like how we how we love it and 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 a little bit. You've talked about spam a lot, and and you've talked about the musubi from Poi Dog. You've talked about the history of like how it got to the islands. We can talk about the history of World War II and et cetera, et cetera. One of the things that for me, I wish people knew is that you can do almost anything with it. You just have to cook it. Yeah, it is amazing to me that anybody would consider eating spam out of the can. And I understand that is why people think it's gross. But but why would you do that? Like, would you take a frozen <laughs> piece from a bag and eat them plain? Like, yes, technically you can. Like, yes, they're going, they're not going to kill you. But why would you do that? It, it's like that with anything. Like, it's an ingredient. It's you have to do something to the ingredient. Yes. I understand if like, you know, you you were in a war and spam was like part of your rations, which is how it started or got kicked off. Yeah. And you didn't have a heating element and wow, and and also like Korean spam or luncheon meat or whatever. It's like names don't do it justice, but 
The Koreans are so far ahead of the spam game. It's ridiculous. There is like one of my best friends is Korean and she owns a business that imports specialty ingredients from Korea to the States. And she would bring me like whenever she goes back to Korea, she brings me back like the super fancy high end Korean spams, like the black yes. pig spam. Yes. It's so it's it's like the foie gras of spam. It's so, so good. And like, you know, plain old regular spam is also delicious. Yeah. Uh, let me show you what I'm working on. I would love a scoop. So I have a show coming up um, at the Hyatt Centric in Philly where they're giving me so much wall space that. Hell yeah. Yeah. It's like an entire corridor and also like shelves in like their main lobby. So it's a lot of space that I have to fill. So I'm like, <laughs> all right, I guess it's time to make stuff really big. Yeah. So we're doing really big spam. Yes. Perfect. So this is as big as I could go for this round, but maybe I'll make one even bigger. I have some time. It doesn't open until August. For audio listeners and and visually challenged listeners, we've got a beautiful crocheted piece of a can of spam. It's the twenty five percent less sodium. If you haven't seen that can, it it they they try and make it seem healthier than it is by putting a bun like a, a dish with a bunch of vegetables on it. And Kiki has gone and cro crocheted three D versions of all of the vegetables as well. Yeah, are they like broccoli is super fun to crochet? Tell me about that. Like what? So so okay okay we're 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 gonna go down a, a fiber arts uh, rabbit hole. So are you a Ravelry person? Do you have a Ravelry account? No, I'm vaguely aware of what that is. Yeah, it's it's social I... me it's social media for fiber arts people. Okay, yeah, I I feel like I've come across posts, but I don't know I I I don't know enough enough. Like I feel like if I just keep, if I try to talk about Ravelry, I'm no, no, fair enough. But so, like, it, it, it's a repository for patterns for knit, crochet, loom work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, across all different sorts of weights and fiber types and hook and needle sizes. A lot of the stuff you can get for free. A lot of people use it also to be able to trade, to be able to trade um, fiber uh, material stores so that they can continue in like the buy nothing left lifestyle. If say like they were gifted a bunch of stuff, which is which is lovely, but but yeah, so but but tell me about like what what it is like to to crochet a, bro a broccoli. So first of all, I need to preface this by so I crochet freehand. I don't know how to read a pattern at all. Like it's complete nonsense to me, and I don't have a lot of patience, and so I've never actually learned. I just kind of like figure things out and do things my own way. So for broccoli, and I don't even know like the real terms for whatever you call these stitches. Like I just sort of make them up. Sure, sure. Uh, so you, like in my brain, I can only explain to you that I crochet a tube and then I do a bobble stitch all over. So it looks like broccoli and it's so satisfying because it looks so much like oh, broccoli. Oh, incredible. And then like it also makes you like think about packaging in like a really detailed way. Like who knew that there was this much cauliflower on the 25% less sodium spam. Like, I know, you know, you look at packaging and you're just like, all right, that looks familiar. I'm going to grab that off the shelf. But like, if you're going to crochet the package, you learn so much about like the decisions behind um, like the the photography. Yeah. Like there's just so much broccoli on this, the misleading broccoli, I would say, on this spam can. I'm going to step I off camera and grab grab one of my current projects. I'll be, I'll be here in a okay. sec. Okay. 
we're back. Headphones on so I can hear you. You just sort of figure things out because of like the, the work. This was one of those things about learning to read patterns that I just sort of figured out. So I'm working on this wall hanging that will be like in the colors of, of the media company. But I found this sort of pattern which creates this nice sort of like checkered, lovely, sort of almost granny square-ish looking thing. And so I knit the segments to it. So there's there's a, a lime green component. There is this incredible sort of oh goldenrod yellow. It's gorgeous. Thank you. Then there's the wonderful sort of grape, almost burgundy purple that we've got here. But eventually what will happen is it'll get stitched together and then it'll be... It, yeah, it'll it'll hang it it'll hang here in the set as the part of, part of our branding because we're I don't know what your PR people tell you but we're always all about about like send me brand. send me a photo once uh, you're done with that love to give it given our proclivities toward if I have enough scraps left over I might just make make you a scaled version for it to have at home and then oh no we'll have to tape another one okay where, where we both have have them in shot. Oh no, whatever shall we do? We'll have to talk some more. Yeah, this is fun. But it, it can't be underestimated. Like, yes, in, in spite of Spam's troubled, his, Spam's troubled history, like Asian, like as Asians, we just have this deep, profound love for it at the same time. And it's okay for to, to have to have both feelings at the same time. I know it's very, it's, they don't cancel each other out. Yes. Like I, I, obviously talk a lot about sustainability and honestly, most of that has to is tied in with like guilt of like exacerbating existing problems like it doesn't stop me from eating spam i eat spam consciously and i hope everybody that like eats spam like has it weigh on them um, that they are giving money to multinational corporations and eating something that's like ultra highly processed yes that is not the most helpful thing that you can put in your body. Like, I hope everybody realizes this, but like, you know, life isn't always about making good choices. Yeah. Sometimes you make bad choices and those bad choices make you feel good. Or they make you think about like things in your childhood that were great. Just, I mean, Hawaii. Okay. So the other side of my family is from Hawaii and it's a very, very nostalgic place. Yeah. You, I feel like they like colonize spam in a way. You know, <laughs> it's not good for you. Like you in, you have like multiple health problems that like, you know, that are existent in this community because you guys, we eat too much spam. Okay. So maybe yes. just like don't eat yes. as much, but also like it's okay to take ownership of this thing because it was imposed upon you. Yes. And, it's like you don't a, need to eat the entire can in one meal between two people. You really well, don't. You can just have a slice and then like put the rest in the freezer. Like a thing is going to last forever. Just it's going to be fine. Like, you know, cut it, like open the can, cut it into nine slices, like yes. take one slice out and then like put the rest, the other eight into the freezer, yes. uh, which is how we do it here. Because like I don't actually eat that much spam. Like I, I love it. But do I want that much sodium, even if it's 25 percent less like in my body? No. Yeah. Uh, and like all the meats I buy are from like. You know, the farmer's market. So, like, it's, uh, it's anyway. Right. My, there's also an idea of balance that I think is very, very Chinese. Whenever we ate junk growing up, like, if I wanted to, like, have a b bag of Doritos, I was required to eat a banana afterwards. And, like, nice. I understand these things don't, like, cancel each other out, but they kind of do. I, 
So if we were going to frame it a different way and tell me if I'm a hundred percent off base, but one of the things that I wish when we were talking about like being whole people, being well people, I wish we didn't talk just about like our physical body. I wish we included in that sort of set of ratios and calculations and stories. I wish we talked about our mental health, our emotional wellness, the the sort of valuesy things in the in the space of like philosophy, ethics, existentialism, spirituality, maybe even like if if you're conventionally spiritual, you might call it faith or religion, but like whatever it is, it is we're not just only like husks of people. We are not only our physical bodies. We are all of these other things too. And you can have a technically very healthy physical body while also like having awful things happening like in the brain. Although if awful things are happening in the brain or in the emotion or the mental space, chances are awful things will start happening in, in the physical body as well and vice versa. But Yes. So I have. Okay. So I have an internet friend. Her name's Daphne and she's based on the West Coast and she's like a butter mochi queen. Shout out to, uh, shout out to butter mochi. Shout out to Daphne. Yeah. But so Daphne is the butter mochi queen. But I remember, so I interviewed her for an article. And first of all, she's super, super smart and like just wonderful and supportive. And also, I think she's she's like she's friends with or actually related to like my cousin's cousin. So we're somehow connected. Awesome. On the family side. I'm not sure how. I can't remember. We like we had to do a deep dive, but like very, very large families. Anyway. So oh. the thing is, she had a really great like sum up of um, her relationship to spam for me. And she had like gone to had done like a master's in nutrition. Like she wow. was like was I think, like, a raw vegan for years. So wow. was not eating spam. She and I remember her saying that she wasn't like the healthiest when she was following this specific diet and she's no longer she doesn't eat like that anymore and she still eats well like like a well-rounded uh, diet but like but uh, when it came but at the beginning of the pandemic when it felt like we were having an apocalypse yeah uh, the first of multiple multiple apocalypses uh, she like went and ordered a case of spam not like a can of spam but like a case of spam Somebody, this is somebody who hasn't eaten spam in years, is Hawaiian from Hawaii. I think she lives in Portland now, but just like, was just like, I, I the world is ending. What am I going to do? I'm going to order a case of spam. So yeah. like, that was her reaction. And like, it brings her home. Just like whenever, like, I don't eat spam to be for a while. And then I take a bite of one and all of a sudden, like, I'm like instantly transported to like my childhood and feeling loved or like. Um, all the things that like I good things I associate spam to be with but it's such like a powerful collective memory it's just so funny to me that somebody with a master's in nutrition and who avoided spam for years like all right we're having an apocalypse all right everything all my education's forgotten let's get the, the case of spam and I'm sure that happened like I'm sure she's not the only one that that did this like it was like a knee-jerk reaction so you've spent a lot of time in Philly have you run across either of these yes both um, I don't eat a ton of them, and I, I still think Spam is better. I don't Scrabble, disagree with you. Scrabble, I mean, for its name, surprisingly good. Right. Shocking, shockingly good. Um, Lebanon Bologna. So I have another friend who actually works for a Lebanon Bologna company 
and sent me a few rounds of yeah. sausages. What do you? I mean, what do you it's usually cut into like slices, and yeah, it comes in packages of uh, of a pound, and they're they're processed plastic, just like everything else. But yeah, yeah, um, and it's and I I made a I did a recipe for them that was so they're in Hawaii they're called UFO musubis, and it's. The bottom of the musubi is a Gothenburg sausage, and then like, and then you sprinkle like furikake on top, and then it looks like a UFO. That's why we call them UFOs. What a brilliant idea! I I need to get to I need to get out to Reading Terminal and get some get some Lebanon bologna today because that is such a much more enjoyable way of eating Lebanon bologna, which operates under the same principles. Why would you eat it raw? Just in a tiny little bit of oil and butter, and get all of that beautiful char. Maybe melt us. I, I like like what is it? There's this cor- Korean stew that that has spam and Vienna sausages in it. But you always melt over a slice of processed American cheese product. The same thing is true of like le- Lebanon bologna. Like you just you can fry it up like a grilled cheese sandwich, and it's perfect as long as you cook it. So cook cook your yes. meats, America. Cook your meats, especially especially chicken. Yeah, cook your meats whether they're processed or not. Like it's just just. You'll 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 thank us later. Yes, indeed. This indeed. Um, this has been the this is this has been the East Asian Pacific Hour lessons to live by. I want to I want to pivot a little bit. One of the things in the time of our taping that has started to come up for you more is is this continuing payoff now that the world is starting to reopen. We've gotten to see a little bit more of you on TV. We've gotten to see you did you did a demo um, with Good Morning America. I know you have some more things coming. You've done a ton of these things. You've done quite a few, and without talking about the spef- specifics of individual producers or or other other specific formats, I know one of the things you said is really important to you is how younger chefs, younger or at least earlier in their career experience chefs navigate those experiences can you say a little more yeah so i i know this from like the food media side as well as like the chef side and i have i've been a chef mentor on and off over the years um through various being on the boards of various organizations uh that help basically high schoolers typically find a voice through cooking have like a viable like job skills or just to like have their hands in food so that they can feed themselves yeah. Um, when they're on their own. So so that means like I've I've talked to students and younger chefs of various skill levels and various like times of their life and like with various intentions of what they want to do with whatever culinary skills they're acquiring. And culinary skills are are one thing like it, that's like a very teachable thing. Like, yeah, there's a correct way to hold a knife and there's a correct way to do things. And obviously, like there's a health code. You follow it. And, you know, these are all very clear things to teach people. But I think there's a lot that isn't taught and that you have to figure out along the way. But if anyone is looking for unsolicited advice, I think it's very important to know that uh, you can actually affect the record. Um, I've had instances where my name was spelled wrong or my birthplace was wrong or something about my biography was wrong. And there are many ways to avoid this, like have a PR folder, even if you don't have a PR team, like have a folder where you have all the correct information and all the photos that you that you like, both of your food and of yourself stored in one place and make it very, very easy for 
whoever's going to write about you or your food um, to get the get accurate information. Yeah, it's not that it's not easy being a food writer. You don't get paid a lot, and you often have to deal with uh, people who have never been interviewed in their entire lives. So then there's like a little bit of like media coaching along the way, but not everybody has time for that or the resources. So if somebody misrepresents you, they're not doing it out of malice. They're doing it because they're just trying to do your job and they're just trying to do their job and uh, their job is not the easiest. So I, I try to go through life making my like making other people's lives a little easier and to not be difficult in the process. So a PR folder with your bio that's approved of the things that you want people to write about um, with your name spelled correctly. And for some reason, like if it gets through several editors and it's wrong or they put up a horrible headline that you hate, you can talk to the writer. You can bring things up. You don't have to like blast them on social media, like just raise it with like the context contents with the contacts that you have. Yeah. That like I, I think I need younger chefs, especially ones that expect to get into some sort of sort of media understand that they have paths of recourse and they should take them with before getting upset i i also didn't grow up in a social media generation and i also grew up in hong kong where we were late to all yeah. this stuff yeah uh, so like i know understand i th- see things a little bit differently than if i were like born in 2000 and raised when like facebook was for old people which is wild to me but yeah like you can you can speak up for yourself. It's okay. You don't have to speak up your, to yourself and like ruin somebody else's life. You can speak up, but you don't have to be a jerk about it. Yeah. Yeah. When are we going to see a cookbook from you? You know what? I've had cookbook proposals float around for years since 2017. Yeah. And they keep. I keep hearing from editors that Hawaii's food is too niche and that I don't have a large enough platform. So it's not something I'm actively pursuing. I, I mean... I, I I hope so. There's a piece that I wanted to lean into a bit. You you touched on it already. You are uh, you're you're a food writer. You you spend a lot of time thinking about media. We we touched on social media as well. I happen to know also that you have a degree in classics. You've done you've done a ton of of reading and writing and absorption and thought work around literature. So I wonder if you can say just what what is there to be gained like if we slow down and pay attention to things like the class? Well, the classics is tricky and in the last sure few years or last few decades, it's a discipline that is, has often either been forgotten or has gotten a lot of bad press, some of which is justifiable and some of which is grossly misunder- misunderstanding of the classics. So I have a I have a degree in classics, but I also I have a background in being a comparatist. So my undergraduate is in uh, comparative literature with Italian and classics. Another master's uh, from like en route uh, PhD that uh, is in comparative literature. And then I had left that program to start a PhD in classics uh, that I also left uh, with a master's. Mm-hmm. So I feel like as my personality and I... I, I and this is unique, somewhat unique in classics. Like you don't typically have a stronger comparatist. Being in comparative literature allows you to read really, really widely and draw together things that no one's ever like compared before. It's yeah. honestly very cool. Yeah. Classics is the opposite. Classics is a very small field that is that has for the longest time been 
dominated by white men. Yeah, yeah. And there are certain things about classics that, I mean, comparative literature is a, is a, is a very colorful field. It's very welcoming. And not, all, not that many white dudes. On six is, is a very, very different world. Like it, it's, yeah. it, it's a totally different beast. I like languages. I specifically really like ancient Greek. Learning Greek to me was like learning mathematical formulas that didn't always work, but mostly worked. And it's yeah. like, I mean, like, it's like, it scratched like the part of my brain that really likes puzzles. And so if, for me, it was like, it was an intellectual challenge to like get into this language and figure out how it works. And, and then at the end of the day, you solve the puzzle and it's also a beautiful poem. Yeah. So that, like, that part's really cool. I also um, had a fellowship in Greece. I, I just, I loved it. However, like there are many things in the, in American classics as a field that did it was like there were like I would come across things where I'm like you're shooting yourself in the foot. Like why are you saying this? Yeah. So I had a so even though like I specialized in literature and I only did some material culture um, and I like observed digs um, in Greece, I didn't actively participate th in them as part of my archaeological program. So one of my like sort of offshoot research interests was about food and um, the portrayal of food in epic literature, epic poetry, and also, like, I was very into, like, not very into, it sounds like I'm, like, really into this band. No. So one of my, I was, I studied Roman historiography, but also, like, later Greek historiography, which is, like, the study of history. Sure. So, like, how is history portrayed? How is it written by, like, certain writers? Like, why are these writers, like, writing the way that they are? Like, what sort of story are they telling? Like, how literary is this? Like, we, we probably don't know the exact facts, and we might never, like, what is, like, you know, what devices are they using? Like, how are they, like, how are they manipulating language? So I'm coming with this background and studying something like garum. So nowadays, garum is a phrase that's thrown around thanks to Noma to mean like a fermented liquidy sauce. Mm -hmm. And it's an interesting revisiting of this term that's not exactly historical, so historically accurate, but garum essentially was came in many different forms, but it was a fish sauce. And it was like the ketchup of the ancient world. Okay. There were very, there are different types of, of garum, like they're just like there are different grades of olive oil. One of the fancier types is a type called garum sociorum, which is garum that's made with fish drowning in fish sauce. So you take the fish, the live fish, and you drown them in the fish sauce. So it's Garum sokiorum literally means like the garum of my comrade of, of comrades. So yeah. like you're like drowning in like the guts of like your of of other fish. Uh, so that was like a special type. And anyway, it altogether like disappeared through a variety of reasons. Sure. And over the years, I would say like over the last century, most of the writers who mention garum are like it was putrid. It's Dank. This is disgusting. Like the ancient Romans are so gross for like loving yep. this stuff. Like how could they? Like it just doesn't make any sense. This shows how different like the ancients are from the moderns. But they were classicists. Like they are the people like studying this ancient civilization, telling us that the food that they had in this ancient civilization was disgusting. There's no way it was disgusting. Like think about the fish sauce we have today. Um, like this, like all the fish sauces that come out of like the Philippines, Vietnam. Like they're delicious. They're yes, they're fantastic. fishy. They're briny. Yes, and like 
people like this stuff like in the modern day but you have like the old white dude saying like oh no this is gross like nobody wants to eat fish guts whereas like you have like an entire continent that's just like no the fermented fish guts are actually delicious and like so that's what i mean by like classes just like shooting themselves in the foot they're like all right cool we have the civilization that we're obsessed with we're studying but like part of what they did was utterly ridiculous and invalid and gross like why would you do that so anyway so what's something that i had a, had a pet project of trying to save garam's reputation and anyway so back to overarching classics and the value of it it's a tricky thing because classics has not been very friendly to people of color yes for a long time and yeah and in more recent years certain texts have been incorrectly co-opted by right-wing groups to supplement their ideas in incorrect ways you mean they were doing that before ayn rand or actually after yeah 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 there's like right wing for some reason like and i haven't looked into this too much because it's first of all it's not really my area sure i don't sure. Be googling like right wing stuff but like, uh, just, yeah you don't need that search engine I, optimization I, I, yeah no i don't i really but yeah there's a few books about it recently actually donna zuckerberg mark zuckerberg's mm. sister has published about the right wing like the alt-right uh co-opting classics on the internet i read part of the book i didn't read all of it it's it's you need a strong stomach. Yeah, you do. I there's so we're 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 re, we're reaching close to the end of our time. Uh, and there's a piece that you've touched on in other interviews that I want to lean into a little bit more. And that is this that is this this sense of identity that that you've started to you've started to explore. You've talked about labels of like what makes a chef. You've talked about identity of what what it we've talked here what it means to be in diaspora of of having two homes but but and, and having things from those homes and and the reminders of home with the, the example of your friend Daphne but but also not being geographically there and maybe and and we don't always necessarily have like the levels of connection that we wish that we had like some some of those connections aren't aren't are, are, are lost, forgotten. We have have our stories. This, it, you've talked about in other interviews, the work of figuring things out and you and your sister doing the work of, of effectively parenting your, yourselves. The, the fortitude, the resilience of that and making, making one's self. How do we keep going? Where does the wellspring of grit determination scrappiness perhaps what what keeps refilling that for you i mean i i don't know i like i, I wish i had an answer yeah. like I, I don't even feel like it's just to like make something up on the spot because it's a big question it's a good question i tend not to dwell on these things yeah rolling stone gathers no moss something something that, like that. we're we're reaching the end of our time and there, there's nothing more than I would love right now than to be like, like, sitting on a beach with a can of like Maui brewing and like enjoying, enjoying the. Well, I, I guess right now it's about noon. Enjoying the noonday sun. Well, no, it's still in the morning. Enjoying the sunrise. So maybe someday. But until the next time that we chat, we have just one last question for you. It's a little bit about impact and legacy, and it's the same question that we ask everyone as we're closing out our time, and that is. What do you want the world to look like when you're done with it? 
oof, I mean, we've had, what, four-ish apocalyptic events in our region that extended to way beyond our region region in the last couple years. I don't know. Like, I feel like I wake up a lot and I don't recognize the world that I'm in. Yeah. And then at the same time, like, everything feels the same. To be honest, like, I don't, I don't think too much about legacy. Like, I don't, like, I feel like I work really hard on, and I feel like I have made some dent in food media on, for example, like, one of my main goals to honestly represent Hawaii's food. And I see the impact of that work that is done by me, other people uh, who are writing about Hawaii, our voices are not loud enough. And of course, chefs in Hawaii that are doing really special things with Hawaii's natural resources. Like, I'm happy to be like part of this movement. I, But I don't know about legacy. Like, I feel like I go a few, st- I mean, this is quite dismal. Like, I feel like we go a few s- steps forward and then the world is burning again in like a different way that I never would have expected. I know I have a lot of, I've had a lot of very interesting, good opportunities and I'm extremely grateful for them and future ones, but but I'm still very caught up in it feels like the world is burning. Yeah, it, well, it is. How do you have a legacy when like, when it's just gonna be set fire to? I don't know. We'll keep thinking about it, I guess. My thanks to Chef Kiki Aranita. You can check out a show of her fiber arts currently on display through the end of the summer at the Bobble House NYC. You can buy her sauces and merch at poydogphilly.com. You can follow her on Instagram at Kiki Aranita and see her recent Good Morning America TV experience at the links in the episode description below. Thank you so much for tuning in to Uncommon Good with Polly Reese. This program is produced in Southwest Philadelphia on the unceded neighborhood of the Black Bottom community and on the ancestral land of the Lenape Nation who remain here in the era of the fourth crow and fight for official recognition by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania to this day. You can find out more about the Lenape Nation of Pennsylvania and how you can support the revitalization of their culture by going to lenape-nation.org. Our associate producers are Willa Jaffe and Kia Watkins. If you enjoyed listening to the show, please support the show by leaving us a five-star review and a comment and subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help people find us. Uncommon Good is also available on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram at Uncommon Good Pod. Follow us there for closed captioned video content and more goodies. We love questions and feedback. You can send us a DM on social media or an email at uncommongoodpod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, wishing you every uncommon good to do your uncommon good to be the uncommon good.